0: Welcome to Freedom of Species. Uh, Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about all issues concerning animals, including animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, sheer appreciation. We are broadcasting from 3CR Studios live today in Melbourne and it is a really exciting day because it's 3CR's open day. So if you're in the Collingwood-Fitzroy area... Or even further, it is well worth your while getting down here because there is a feast. To be had. (laughs) (laughs) There is a lot of beautiful vegan food out there. Yeah,
1: and gluten-free, vegan gluten-free food. Yeah,
0: and you can check out the studios, which are fantastic, and there's live music, so come on down. And there's T-shirts to buy and stickers and
1: books and posters, and it's it's all a buzz here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Now... You can stream this show live via the 3 CR website and um, recent podcasts are there as well. All podcasts are available via
1: iTunes. We've got a few people in the studio. I'm Kate Gracie. We've got Emma Townsend on the panel and we've got Adam Cardellini as a guest here in the studio too. So today we're going to talk to Adam and Adam is an ecologist at Deakin University and he's also a busy animal rights activist, educator and scientist. Adam's just recently attended and presented at the ICAS Oceana conference in Canberra. And ICAS stands for the Institute for Critical Animal Studies. I think Adam's had a very interesting time there just recently. Was that last weekend, Adam? Yeah, it was. Yeah, last last weekend. There you go, Friday and Saturday. But So we're going to talk about um, the conference. But first, we want to hear about what makes Adam tick. So Adam, what makes you tick? (laughs) Thanks for um,
2: inviting me (laughs) along, Kate and Emma. Um, it's good to be here. Uh, so what makes me tick? That's a pretty a pretty uh, big question, <laughs> but I suppose I've got a, a driving vision or a vision that motivates me and drives me to do what I do, and it's really about creating a world where the oppression of others, whether it be other species, other people, or the environment, is no longer acceptable, um, generally acceptable. I don't think we'll ever get to a point where every single person in the world doesn't um, oppress others but uh, I think that we can get to a world where the most people uh, don't accept the oppression of others and that's what drives me and I suppose I sort of got there um, through a bit of a roundabout way. I started really being interested in environmental rights and during my undergraduate degree I studied science and uh, environmental science. Was that at Burwood? Yeah at Burwood at Deakin University. Yeah. Yeah and um was so. there
0: anything? Sorry to interrupt, Adam. That kind of made you want to study environmental.
2: Uh, it was mostly. I was pretty good at it at, um, okay. at high reason. school, yeah. and I've always I've always been really interested in um, philosophy and sort of pushing pushing people's understanding or ideas or questioning things. I really yeah. enjoy science because you're able to question things and um, look a little bit deeper than just the surface. So that's probably why I went into science, and biology in particular. And then I was doing biology, but it's, it, it was very set up um, around cellular biology and things like that. And my interest was more in having a, uh, an applied um, effect on the world through environmental science, and that's what I felt I could I could do more through environmental science. So I studied...
1: Like a philosophical science, yeah. almost. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Nice.
2: Um, and, yeah, so I was studying that, and... Uh, and met some really really interesting people and before before I went into that degree I was I was sort of a um a meat eating sort of not very nice person in regards <laughs> to ve- vegetarianism or veganism and met some people that were vegetarian uh, and they they sort of convinced me to start thinking and questioning my ideas around that um and through that, I, I watched um, a movie called Earthlings, <laughs> and
1: that would have been a watershed moment. Yeah, it yeah. definitely
2: was. It questioned, it made me very much question my own um, beliefs around animals in particular, and um, and I already had the uh, sort of understanding that the environment was an important thing to look after. So it sort of broadened my broadened my scope on what I thought was important, um, and and then. I, I did my degree, and that was that was good. I went on to um, a PhD, and I did I did honours um, looking at birds, and I went on to a PhD on birds as well. So was, you got a soft spot for birds. Yes, I do have a soft, soft spot for birds. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um And so during my PhD, I did some things that weren't very nice. They were um, they're things that I that I definitely regret now. Uh, but it was through through science I found that certain behaviours and actions were, are normalised and when you're um, using, using other individuals in experimentations or in science, you um, these sorts of things become normal and you just do them. So I was working on a non-native species or what a lot of uh, scientists and conservationists were called feral or invasive species and my project was looking at the genetics of this this. Species across Australia and seeing how they sort of adapt to the landscape evolve to the landscape the Australian landscape since they 've come to Australia and also um, their connectivity uh, across the landscapes and part of that project, because I was capturing uh, non native species it 's illegal to re um, release release them afterwards so i was I killed quite a number of of these non native species. In the wow. yeah, in in the in the idea of science, and it was justified. I justified it to myself, and people around me justified it because it was for a greater good, in air quotes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and I got to the end of sort of doing that a couple of years ago, uh, doing that part of the research. And when I was when I was um, doing this work, I was going to all the way from Tasmania up to. Um, Queensland going to dairy farms because these birds often occurred on dairy farms and I was vegetarian at this stage which is weird because I was still um, killing these individuals but at almost every single dairy farm I went to there was something that I could I I saw that I just could not justify being part of and it was it was really eye-opening and it was making me question a lot of things. Around my consumption and use of non-human animals, and also questioning my research in um, science and in ecology or environmental science, which was meant to be a which I was meant to be doing something good for the environment, but I felt that um, that I wasn't. That I was just killing these individuals for me getting a degree, and because some people came up with this project, and I. And I feel like a lot of science is like that, to be honest. Um, but that's maybe a different, a different topic for another day. Um, but it was through, through seeing those um, cases on dairy farms, and I would have, been, I would have gone to 20, 20 dairy farms from Tasmania to Queensland, and it was just pretty atrocious, really opened my eyes. So I after that, I became very interested in animal rights and very interested in activism for animals and the environment.
0: There's a a lot of things to unpack there, isn't there? Yeah, is. I'm getting the feeling you think you're being an environmental warrior of sorts for Mm. the land and the environment, Uh, studying this invasive
1: species. Are we allowed to know which one it was or it doesn't really matter?
2: uh, Yeah, the common starling.
0: Right, right.
1: right. Which everybody, you know, it's the the, the target for a lot of vitriol, the poor starling, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It doesn't get much sympathy from many quarters at all. No. Why? Why? Adam, Um, tell us why.
2: So it, it was introduced uh, 150 years ago, and it, it just um, eats a lot of crops and things like that. so it's and the, you know, they're, they're implicated in the spreading of certain diseases, uh, which may or may not be uh, very like they might not do it as much as we say. I think with a lot of non-native species, we definitely um, oversell their impact on yeah. the environment yeah. and the economy uh, then we might otherwise do.
1: Yeah, isn't that the way?
2: Hmm.
0: So what were they doing on the dairy farms, though? Why?
2: So they like, so dairy cows, poo lots, and um, starlings like to eat the bugs that come out of the poo. Oh, and, right, yeah.
1: right, yeah, right. Right. So I suppose looking back, you find that when you were doing your, that was your thesis, your PhD thesis. Yep. You would, you'd do it differently now looking back or not?
2: Yeah, I probably wouldn't do um, that thesis. I'd do something Entirely different and if I in hindsight I would do something in um, the nexus between animal rights environmentalism mm. and activism um,
1: but is it because you wouldn't do it differently because of the fact that you had to you had to kill those animals
2: yeah I, I yeah I'd do it if I was to do that study yep. you'd definitely do it differently could you, um, or could not you do that
1: all. could you do that study again without having to kill the animals
2: yeah you could uh, not not legally in Australia so you could catch them and then let them go. Take on their, the sly? On the sly, yeah. yeah. But it wouldn't be legal in Australia to
1: right. do so. Another presenter, Roy Taylor, has just come into the studio during that conversation. So welcome, Roy.
3: Hello. Um, <laughs> is my microphone on? I can't hear myself. Yes, it is. Uh, Adam, that's uh, interesting. Um, hello. Sorry, I'm hello. Uh, running late today. Uh, Work-life interfering with my activism, which is most annoying. I'm curious. So um, what were you killing the Starlings for? To find out what they've eaten, yeah.
2: Uh, it was so I was doing measurements of their bodies, um, and there were several measurements. So one, one was to get genetic samples. So I was taking muscle samples, mm-hmm. um, and also we did some work on their brains. So I was taking extracting their brains and, and looking at their brains to see whether they changed sizes. Um, so my my research was on the evolution of starlings within. A non non-native range, so I was taking lots of measurements of them to see whether there was any changes across the range.
0: So, with the ultimate the ultimate thing being, your research would be used in how we can better kill off these native these invasive species, basically.
3: Yep. And
0: isn't it interesting? Whereas your your place of research was always big dairy farms and what have you that were uh, destroying the environment anyway. <laughs> oh, yep. the irony. And here you are thinking. <laughs> I'm being an environmental warrior with my work.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. It's there's a lot there's a lot of things wrapped up in that, yes. isn't there? Yeah.
3: So um who was funding the research? You're um right,
2: so. so it was it was just a PhD um scholarship through the government.
3: Okay. Yep. And I I wonder do it was directed by the agricultural industry in that in that direction or
2: No, not really. So my supervisors um tried to get funding through a, a national grant but didn't get up. So we just did it without the without as much funding.
1: Okay. Starlings are amazing, aren't they? The ones in the you see those clips in uh, on in um, from England yeah. the the clouds of starlings um, working together in like massive clouds of like thousands and thousands and thousands. Just as a what, what's the name of those
3: flocks? Um, yes. No,
1: no, 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 no.
3: The, <laughs> no,
1: you know when they work when they work together in these huge clouds. There's a special word for that when they. When they when they swoop and dive in, like synchronized. No idea. Oh. No idea. You don't know that. No well, idea. Well, we'll, we'll oh, sorry, we'll, I'll get back to you we'll on that. Think but about it's that. In, yeah. incredible when you yeah. look it up on YouTube. It's a sight to behold. Yes. Yep. Yeah.
3: Now I was just going to say, uh, starlings are often disliked in the UK, mm. so I don't think it's a necessary thing that they're an introduced oh, species okay. to Australia.
1: Why are that? Why are they liked in the UK?
3: I don't know. I mean, people with regards to pigeons, people call pigeons like um, flying rats, rats. <laughs> and, and I think there's a bit similar dislike of starlings and I don't know why they're kind of dirty coloured well, I guess back, It I get,
0: gets back to invasive species doesn't it Adam and what would your take on invasive species be now with all your knowledge?
2: Now my take on invasive species is that um, they're, not, they're not going anywhere and if we are going to be manage, managing them um, I think it's pretty ineffective. Uh, if you look at the rhetoric around cats at the moment, it's very much around we need to kill two million cats in Australia or something like that. I think that's the number. Um, but if we kill those cats, um, there's just going to be more cats. We're not actually getting rid of the problem. And even if we do get an ecological benefit for a short amount of term, a short amount of time, then we need to maintain that management of killing or suppressing numbers um, for ever if we're not getting rid of all cats in Australia or, or, or any other species. so um, And all of that relies on political will. So are pol- are politics, uh, are politicians in 10, 15, 50 years going to continue to fund programs that control um, non-native species? And if they're not, then those species are going to come back in numbers and we're going to lose um, any ecological benefit that we've actually gained. So yeah. I find it I find it a little bit um silly, to be yeah. honest, to yeah. yeah, to think about controlling non native species who are here in huge numbers and that we're not going to be able to get rid of um altogether.
0: And it it brings to mind there's a book by Ken Thompson called Where Do Camels Belong and it's about, you know, this issue globally. When you look at in one country you may have the government trying to kill off all these, you know, like the Brumbies or whatever, these Mm. invasive species. And a lot of the time that uh, invasive species in its native habitat overseas is actually an endangered or extinct species. So it's like we've all got to get together and say, hey.
2: Well, it's funny you mention that because in uh, the UK, starlings are actually, their numbers are plummeting. Um, And it's thought to be, so starlings are... um, a commensurate agricultural species so they're very much um, found in the agricultural areas around the world and in the UK I think that's why people don't like them because they are found in the agricultural regions and they're thought to spread disease and and eat certain things um, that we produce uh, berries and and stuff like that but um, yes starlings are their numbers are decreasing in in the UK um, and you know also likely decreased in Australia over the last sort of 30 years and it could be because of farming. the changes in farming practice and farming intensity. But, um, yeah, as you say, it's very interesting. We're trying to kill them here and they're sort of um, losing numbers in the UK as well.
0: And they're worried in the UK about that?
2: Um, probably not about starlings. There's lots of species of birds in the UK that are losing numbers.
1: Yep, yeah, yeah. Now, Adam, so it sounds that your your PhD was a bit of a, turning point in your own personal evolution
2: it absolutely was yes it, and um sorry
1: no so that so that took you from from being a well, a strict um, um ecology academic yep. into a world of activism and veganism was it that was that the was that the sort of the the, the trigger point
2: it was that that was um that definitely got me into the animal world um during the same period, I also a friend messaged me in and told me he was going along to a Greenpeace um, information session, and I went along. I went along to a Greenpeace information session in Melbourne here, and got involved with that group and started doing some environmental activism around that. So I was, I've got a, a lot more experience in environmental activism, I suppose, through Greenpeace. Um, but then the PhD opened me up to the world of animal activism right. and animal rights and. Those sorts of thoughts, yeah.
1: Now I understand at the moment you've got a project shortlisted by Voiceless for um, a, an award grant. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah. Um, so the idea. So I, I must say that I've just finished my PhD, probably six months ago. Um, finally, it took away longer than I <laughs> than I anticipated, mm-hmm. as they do. But I, I got it done, and I'm actually trying to move out of that area of research um, because of the problems. My my area was ecological genetics, and there's I feel there's a few problems in that space, um, especially if I want to say stay true to my feelings around animal rights. Um, so I've moved out of that space. I'm now working in education, higher education um, at Deakin University, and I do a lot of teaching. So I've got experience in um, teaching and and activism and My project to Voiceless was to create a workshop series that would help individuals out there who might not be very confident or comfortable about being animal advocates. I think there's lots of people out there who really love animals, who want to advocate for them, but are just not sure what to do or where to go. Um, So it'd be a workshop series that helps people develop those skills to become an animal advocate, and really, I wanted to make it um, individualized so it would be useful for individuals who come along um, and it would be centered around a, a single project that that participants would work on that would be targeted at their own interest so the first the first session um, the first day of the workshop would be around identifying an individual's um, space and place and passion within animal advocacy and then trying to think of a project that they could work on for the next six, uh, the next five workshops um, to develop a animal advocacy approach for them that they might go on and do or a um, project that they might do after the workshop.
1: That sounds brilliant. Does, that, does the project already exist and you're seeking Voiceless to, to support it or do you need voiceless, voiceless support in order for it to start?
2: Uh, so it's a thing. It's a project that I've been thinking about for a while, and I think the Voiceless Grant um, proposal gave me the initiative to actually write it up into something and be a little bit uh, more specific about what I wanted it to be. Um, I'll try to do it either way, um, and whether I. It'll just be less bells and whistles, I suppose. It'll be a lot low, a lower key if it's um, just me. I think the, the thing with the Voiceless grant, what I really love to do is at work I do a bit of online education and designing online environments for education. Um, what I'd love to do is have a trial run, do some research around the face-to-face um, sessions for the workshop and then create an online um, environment where anyone around the world could do the same workshop uh, from their own home. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah. So the, the, the workshops that you'd be running in person, would they yep. be here in Melbourne or you you tour them around or how would that work? They'd
2: be in Melbourne, yeah.
1: Okay. Yep. Wow. So when when do you hear if you've been successful with that grant?
2: I don't know, actually. I think they're they're um, giving the grant, awarding the, the grant in February next year, but I think it finished up last Friday. Okay. So... I'm not sure when I actually when we will hear who who won, but there were some fantastic um, other projects I know, that I were, was were in. There? Yeah, I yeah. looked
1: at them too. It's like, oh, these are all fantastic. How can they all win? Surely there's a way because they're all of such great merit.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So whoever wins, I think it's going to be a fantastic a result. Yeah. So yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So and f- so these, if you're assuming yours goes ahead, either way, is that something that's going to be offered for free? Like where would or is it is it going to be um, you know application only to get into, or how might how might their you know average person get involved
2: so I really love the idea of providing services for free, um, especially if it's going to be around activism, and a lot of people who might be interested might not have the means to come to a paid event or a paid workshop so I would be offering the workshops for free or a nominal fee like maybe ten dollars a yeah. session um, maybe and
1: cover tea and coffee yeah exa- exactly <laughs> yeah. so yeah. it'd be yeah
2: ostensibly free um yep. and what was the other question sorry
1: oh i think i think you just nailed yeah. it yeah that's great yeah. oh
2: sorry and uh, it would be by application i think oh, right. because okay. there's a lot of people uh, I, I imagine there might be a lot of people interested so we want to give the people who um maybe need it most the yep. the option the opportunity to come along to the workshops
0: you're listening to 3CR 855am, the Freedom of Species show, and we are speaking with Adam Cardellini, an ecologist at Deakin University, and he's also a busy animal rights activist, educator and scientist. Adam, you've been running these fantastic vegan sci um, YouTube projects. Can you talk about them?
2: Yeah, um, so I did a few earlier on in the year, Um and it was really around, I wanted to marry my interest and love of science with with my um, passion for activism and animal animal rights and activism. And I felt like a lot of the conversations that we have in animal circles are um, opinion-based or there's sometimes speculation. And I wanted to have a, a place where I could gather scientific research that would be useful for for. Other advocates and other people to use in their own advocacy, and just get a interesting list um, and develop a a big sort of repository of of scientific research around veganism in particular and um, other. Other uh, other interesting research that might be interesting to vegans. So I've done a few videos, and they are time-consuming. I tell you what, (laughs) how are they time-consuming?
1: Because it looks like it looks. I mean, you make it look so simple, don't you? You talk to camera, and you go, "Ah, done." What's where's the where's the time?
2: So for me, so the other thing that I've been doing since the videos is um, just writing short. reviews of papers and putting them up on Facebook and spreading them that way. But to to read a paper, say it's a, a normal scientific paper and write a useful, something that I think is a useful um, review of that will take me two to three hours just yeah, because right. you've got to get through the guts of the paper. And depending on the complexity, um, there was one that was around climate change. Uh, I think it was, came out in March. It was around climate change and the and animal agriculture. And if we stopped um, using animal if we stopped animal agriculture we'd be better off um, with climate and we'd also save trillions of dollars and the health of the world would be a lot better. We'd there'd be like a less one million less people dying. A was year. that the
1: Marco Springman yes, paper? That was that was a fantastic I, paper. I, I read that and I yeah. used that because of you, because of oh, great. because of what I found of yours. Yeah. yeah.
2: So that paper, for instance There was a lot of detail in the supplementary materials that I needed to get through and it it would have taken me four to six hours to read it really well for me to understand. Before you present it. Yeah, because I really want to know what I'm saying. I don't want to say something that's uh, incorrect. Um, So that's one part. And then the other is filming. So five minutes, maybe I film for about 30 minutes to an hour, depending, (laughs) and then Editing is a killer. Yeah. So editing down that video is a real, yeah. um, really time-consuming. Well, you do
0: a fantastic job, and oh, isn't you. it great with someone with your experience and and know-how that you can get drill down on those facts for us laymen to um, to understand? Can I? I've got to ask you a question about the importance of peer-reviewed. Um, publications or uh, whatever I often say that you know especially with yep. the Brumby issue at the moment there's no mm. peer-reviewed science to say that they're um, really doing all this damage that the government claims so can you take me through that why is it so important to have peer-reviewed science what is peer-reviewed
2: so peer-reviewed science is really a way of weeding out um, poor science and is usually conservative so if I'm a if I'm a scientist and I've written a paper um, and it depends where you go there 's some some issues around different areas of publication, which journals you go to, but if you go to a good journal, your paper will go to a at least two scientists usually and an editor, and they 'll look through it to see that it um that the claims that you are making and that the research that you 've done are actually something that 's useful and and can be backed up so that you 're not just putting something spurious out there and usually scientists who are reviewing will be conservative so they'll they won't just let something slip through uh, it goes through a lot of rounds of um or can go through quite a number of rounds of review to get it correct so so that you so that you what you're saying you're not just making up that you you're actually making sure that what you've done through your science and through your experiment or through your observations is can draw the conclusions that you've you've come to at the end of your paper, and it always will go to an expert in the field that you're trying to publish in so for instance I've um, had a paper that was uh, went through a review and I think it went through five times <laughs> so it can take quite a long time to get there and you're sort of getting it to a a state where other scientists think that it's a rigorous piece of scientific work um, and without that process really you could just be Putting anything out there, and maybe not um, including all the points that are necessary for your science to be uh, reproducible, one, and also um, good science, I suppose. Yeah.
0: So it's very, it's really important if you. So there's a lot of cherry-picked, um, not peer-reviewed science being used out there.
2: Okay. Yeah. In
0: decision making, is that?
2: So again, science science is an interesting an interesting world. And um, I think there's there's a lot of uh, space for critical reflection around the process of science and how we are doing science and particularly the peer review process of science. So um, a lot of problems come through. There's this sort of relatively recent um, understanding of P-hacking, which is where people will only publish things where there is a significant result or and this is this is a problem in science because we need to have all sides of the story if you if you find if you spend three years, for instance, doing a research study and you find nothing significant, nothing that's sort of interesting or sexy, then it's harder to get into a paper, but it's still very important to know so there could be all of these um, all of this research and information out there um, that's sitting in someone's uh, desk drawer that hasn't come to light and doesn't add to the story. That because it's a null result, um, but
0: but still, that information is important to yep. yeah, to back up. Okay, I see yep. what you're saying. That's really and
3: that my research might be duplicated because no one knows it's not been done before. Yep. And it been done before. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
2: in fact, um, duplication of science is another problem that we don't have enough of it. We really need more duplication of science to show that something is actually a true effect rather than just a one-off chance effect in this particular research that's been done.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, I was of the understanding that a lot of government policy and a lot of government advisors aren't using science to back up their... You know, They're not using scientific evidence to make political decisions. Is that something that you can comment on?
2: Uh, I probably know as much about it is you. And I, I think I think where it comes is that they they do get the information. Um, they'll often have scientific advisors who provide information for them or there's reports there for them to read. Um, but whether they take that advice on board when making their decisions, that's, that's the political game, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Let's go and have a song right now. Let's have a break with a song. And then we'll come back and talk about the Institute for Critical Animal Studies.
0: Excellent. This is a song by G. Love and it's called Hola.
1: You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. That last song was G-Love's Missing My Baby. It wasn't... What did you call it, Emma? Ola. It wasn't Ola.
0: I called it Ola, sorry.
1: (laughs) It was Missing My Baby. I'm no music DJ. Anyway, um, today we're talking with Adam Cardellini. who's here in the studio with us live at the um, 3CR Open Day. Adam's an ecologist at Deakin University and he's a very, very busy... Animal rights activist, educator, and scientist. Adam's just come back recently from the Institute for Critical Animal Studies conference in Canberra. And that's a, an annual conference, I understand. Is that annual, the Oceana conference?
2: Yeah, I believe so. It's the first time that I um, attended, but oh. I think it is annual. I th- yeah. think
1: it's annual. Can you tell us more about the Institute of Critical Animal Studies? Like, what's its principles? Why does it exist? What makes it tick?
2: So, I think. Um, I'm not an expert in this field or about um, ICAS, but I think that it was developed um, or came about maybe a little under 10 years ago. Um, and it's really about expanding the animal studies area in academia and activism. And it's joining, it's a really about joining activism with academic um, work and scholarship and not just having a focus, say, on. Um, Veganism or animal activism, but expanding it and joining it with other movements as well, and doing it within a framework that is um, inclusive and also um, abolishes hierarchies. So they they believe in um, organising collectively, and in fact, ICAS Oceania at least is. Um, run collectively as with a group of people there's no hierarchy in the group um, and they very much um, believe in that that sort of way of organizing.
1: Does that work well?
2: From attending the conference and how fantastic the conference was I think it works very well yeah.
1: Now I understand there's a there's a lot of intersectionality about ICAS now can you explain intersectionality can you unpack that for us?
2: I can try. I will say um so I I'm not definitely not an expert in inter- intersectionality. I've come across it um a little bit and there was certain conversations at the conference uh saying that intersectionality in animal activism and uh in the way that we can talk about it in our animal activism may be problematic uh because it comes from a uh feminist critical feminist studies and really sits within that that framework very well, and then has been adopted by other uh, other movements but there were were some critiques about whether it 's appropriate to adopt it for animal activism and yeah, so anyway, it was interesting there's some good interesting um, theory, theoretical and academic debates uh, and also applied I suppose if you 're talking about um, whether it 's useful to use certain terms but for what i Understand and don't take this for granted. <laughs> <laughs> intersectionality is about understanding that different forms of oppression do um, overlay and intersect with each others with each other to have an effect on individuals that they will experience oppression in the world differently from others so right. it depends on the the layers of oppression that you experience or the different types of oppression that you experience that will um, create the world that you experience so the, and it's really from from other reading i've done in the area um the it's i, I like to think of think about it um more about pluralism or Or thinking about the perspective perspectives of others, and getting making sure you try to think about the perspective that others are, are experiencing and their lived, their lived experience, so if you're yeah I, so it's, it, yeah, it's if difficult you
0: can, Yeah, I know that in the social justice m- movement in general, mm. it seems to be now God I, I can't articulate this stuff, but it yep. makes a lot of sense., yep. it pretty much is a peace bomb to use the wrong. <laughs> but it—it's um, it, like you know you can't. A lot of people that you can't combat animal exploitation without also addressing the race, racism Absolutely. or you know um, gender issues. So it's it's including all of that because if you're just going to be brazen about veganism yep. and you're not acknowledging um, situations or where other people are, what uh, how they're living and what yep. they're doing, and not including. Their position, then,
2: it yeah, it can, can go
0: against what you're trying to.
1: I really, I think it's a really nice way that, so. that that you expressed it. That it's a you have to take in other people's perspectives, mm. and I think that's really valuable because I, I know, I think. us animal rights activists can get a little bit blinkered and single-minded about our objective, yep. which of course is for the animals. Mm-hmm. But maybe there's an effectiveness in um, being more inclusive of how, where. Other people's perspectives. If we want to take everybody with us to this common objective, we need to include other people's positions and perspectives and experiences. Yeah. So we all go together instead of dragging them, kicking and screaming that mm. everybody comes together.
0: Yeah. Which kind yeah. of brings us. Sorry.
2: Adam. No, I was just I was just going to say and um, and respecting that there are other forms of oppression or situations that these individuals might be in that that mean that they are more likely to behave problematically in in respect to animals say or any other any other sort of form of injustice
1: that's so true i remember just a few years ago i was in the i was in manila in the philippines and thinking and you know there's there's a lot of i mean it's not abject poverty like you see in africa granted Mm. but there's a lot of there's a lot of poverty people struggling to make ends meet and to feed their children and there's and it's a very meaty diet there in the philippines it's really Mm. meaty the meat everywhere it's really hard to be vegan and i was thinking it sort of occurred to me i was like. When, how would ever get, say, the, the, however, I don't know how many people live, there's something 300 million people live in the Philippines or something crazy. How are you ever going to get them all on board hmm. when they're still struggling with their own daily lives of, of, of oppression and suffering and poverty? How, how are we going to get these, these kind of populations on board when, when they've already got so many issues right in front of them in their daily lives? And yep. it's almost like for us, we're, we're so lucky that we can then concentrate on animal rights. Yep. Mm. Do you know? And I think it's, e- it's so easy to lose sight of that, that we are so fortunate that we, you know, we are going to get fed each day. We're going to be warm. We're going to be dry. We're going to have some income, you know, and then we can concentrate on looking at the suffering of others. But and we need to kind of keep in mind we are the minority. Yep. Our, f- our good fortune, we're amongst the minority.
2: Absolutely, and and it won't be. We won't end the suffering of animals and the oppression of animals until we also end the oppression of other forms of oppression for those those groups that are not going to um, be able to think about animals as much because they're they're living um, sort of hand to mouth. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Um Now, Adam, you also presented at the ICAS conference. Can you tell us about your presentation?
2: Uh, So my presentation was sort of all on this sort of topic. Um, It was really about moving beyond the messaging. I find that a lot of the, the work that we do in animal activism is about trying to convince people that it's good to go vegan or stop eating meat and things like that. It's really a messaging campaign. It's all about communication. I want to start having a conversation with other activists and other people about how we think about transition. How do we actually get those dairy communities who are ideologically and um, driven to be dairy farmers through identity and necessity, how do we think about transitioning communities that are dependent on animal agriculture to not be dependent on animal animal agriculture. And it goes to what you were saying before, Kate, that we need to think about more than just saying it's wrong to eat animals. How do we actually help people transition? And not only people, but um, communities. And really, in behavioural change research, one of the strongest predictors of people having long-term behavioural change is... uh, self-efficacy and knowing and thinking that they can they can actually change and i think that we can work in that space a lot more in in the animal activist world so for instance i i do a bit of outreach um in melbourne and a common a common response you get is someone will see what we're showing and they'll go this is atrocious this is horrible it's terrible that this is happening but I don't know how to eat vegan, I don't have um, the skills to eat vegan, it's too expensive and they'll rattle off a a list of reasons why they can't go vegan. And from our perspective as vegans we go, well, you know, it's not that hard but if we take it from their perspective they don't have that self-efficacy, they don't believe that they can do it. So if we can provide opportunities to help people who might just be on the cusp of going vegan but just need a hand, Um, And not just, I mean, there are great resources like uh, Vegan Easy is one that comes to mind. that are there for people to use. But even more than that, developing communities and um, building communities that can help others who are interested in going vegan actually go vegan. I've got a a vision of having a a vegan meal co-op where people like maybe $10, $15 a day, um, people can get three meals, three vegan meals a day and you have it in a, a local area, a local vegan meal co-op. I think if someone was faced with, oh, I, I really don't want to keep on contributing but I have no idea how I could go vegan, you present this as an option. And it would be good for me because I'm lazy and I'd like to
1: have... <laughs> And me, yeah, that would be great. I think it's a great idea. It's a great <laughs> yeah. idea, like yeah. a sort of a food hall for transitioning vegans. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and a community space.
2: Yeah, for helping them. So the reason I'd like... The idea of a co-op is because first off they can start getting the meals, but then they could come in and learn how to cook. Like that could be building their self-efficacy and be able to actually produce their own meals, knowing what to cook. They could come into the kitchen and volunteer to build themselves up and develop their skills in that area.
1: Great idea! Great yeah. idea. What
0: about though, when it comes to the self-efficacy, getting back to like the dairy farmers and transitioning mm. on that bigger scale, when you've got third generation, fourth generation dairy farmers, yep. who really have blinkered eyes on, um,
2: so I loving think-
0: their animals, and um, and you know, a lot of people go vegetarian before they go vegan because we also have that ethical blind spot that we don't realise it's a killing industry. Yeah. So how do you? not to go further down that road, but how, how do you propose the way forward there?
2: So I think starting the discussion, actually. And one thing, the other the other thing around the communication that we are currently using is it's all very similar. So we are talking, we, we're using generic um, sort of messaging for everyone and we're not really targeting our messaging for, so what we don't, we, it, there'd need to be research to um, figure out sort of, um market segmentation basically of people's attitudes and behaviors and how they how you can shift people's depending on their attitudes how you can shift them towards a behavior of ethical veganism um so that's that's one thing that i think needs to be explored more is to figure out how we actually speak to certain groups of society yeah fr- um,
1: framing it for the for particular target yep, audiences
2: yep um and then the, the other the other thing is I think there's some impact opportunities coming up in the next ten to fifty years. Um and it's how we as a movement respond to these opportunities, whether we can end certain industries quickly rather than have them drag on for a long time. And they they for me are things like um Perfect Day Dairy, which is a dairy well, they're a company in America who are creating um dairy using yeast cells, so they're using um, genes splice from cows to create dairy dairy milk, exactly the same as cows' milk, but it'll be in vats of um, yeast. So if that if that becomes commercially viable, so that they reckon they'll have a product out in stores in three years. Give it twenty years to become commercially viable and competitive with dairy milk, and then it becomes an economics game. It becomes if people can get it cheaper, and it doesn't come from cows, and there's the better benefit of not. Herding cows by getting your milk there, then we have a real opportunity to capitalise on this shift in um, commodity and end dairy agricultural uh, production. So So. this
1: this um this yeast milk or this this other alternative real milk is something that could potentially be developed. Each individual farmers could be a maker of this milk. So could they make it in batches like a dairy farmer?
2: I'm not sure we know that detail yet, okay. but it's it's it'll be it'll be interesting to see where this goes. And I think we need to be ready to um, capitalise because I think there's. I'm sure we can all think of a number of um, comments that people have. I'm not going to have that. It's not natural. Mm. It's Franken food. That sort mm. of thing. I think if we can. Um, sort of preempt those those responses and try and change the conversation away from saying this is unnatural to this is something that's beneficial and this is something that's good and also support dependent communities, dairy communities, for instance, to transition away from that um, type of production, then I think that's something that... And for for me, that involves research. What other products can be produced that are non-animal in those um, towns and those those areas and those regions. Do we have the research um, to to back up transitioning um, certain communities independent communities? But I don't, from from my awareness or my reading, I haven't heard a lot of that in the um, in the movement. And I think that's where we need to start thinking: how can we think about transitioning? dependent communities away from the production of non-human animals
1: and they can diversify their production on their land yep this is great this sounds awesome now unfortunately that's all the time we have to talk about this i'd like to i'd like to talk about this for another hour unfortunately we have to end for the next show
0: nearly opened up the whole dairy thing and And we've
1: opened up that can of worms Mm. plus i'd like to hear more about the icas conference but anyway another time We're just going to have, before we go, we've just got some community announcements. Roy, you've got some to share with us?
3: Yes, I have. Um, First of all, uh, the Animal Activist Forum is being held on the Gold Coast next weekend, uh, next Saturday, Sunday, with a day of activism throughout the Friday. Ticket sales uh, should have ended last night, but we've extended them a couple of days, because, as always, we're getting all our ticket sales at the last minute. So... You can go and get tickets for the Animal Activist Forum at activistforum.com. And I think ticket sales close on the 11th, I think, though essentially buy them now because they're selling and we're going to close the ticket sales any moment now. And uh, that's on the Gold Coast. Still time to get a flight and go up there. I'm being hurried up, so please get tickets for the Activist Forum. The other thing I need to announce is Coalition for the Protection of Race is also running loads of events over the Spring Racing Carnival. These involve um, getting a message... um, on the back window of your car we're doing big car stenciling on the back windows of the car for more information contact volunteers at horseracingkills.com that's another one that i'm involved in
1: there's world vegan day coming up the big annual world vegan day which is fantastic um, if you're vegan or you're curious about veganism or you, or you
0: need to do some christmas shopping or you need to do some mm. christmas shopping or
1: you're just just an animal activist anything and just and it's very family friendly and it and it's for um, from from babies right through to to the elderly World Vegan Day is at the Melbourne Showgrounds. It's on Sunday the 23rd of October. Excellent. And it's free and it's fantastic. Then there's also a vegan Lebanese cooking course that's being held at Friends of the Earth in Collingwood. That's coming up on Sunday the 30th
0: 30th of October, October, 4.30 to 6.30. It costs $40 and it includes a light meal refreshment and recipes. And you can RSVP at food at foe which is friendsoftheearth.org.au.
1: Sweet. And then Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign, they're having a bunch of different um, beach litter pickups um, next Saturday, Saturday the 15th of October. Let's get onto their Facebook site uh, and have a, have a look at the details for where those are occurring. So that's called that Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign. So that is all the time we have for today. That's all we've got. You can get in touch with us at info at freedomofspecies.org. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter, and we have podcasts on our website, freedomofspecies.org. Thank you very much, Adam, for coming in today. You're brilliant. Yeah, thank you so much, Adam. Thank Thank you for having
2: me.
0: Where do do we see your YouTube? Yeah, where?
2: Uh, Vegansci.com. So Vegansci is is v Oh, actually, vegan. So V-E-G-A-N-S-C-I, and just type it into YouTube. You'll find it there, or Facebook as well.
1: Yeah, and I encourage everyone to go on and have a look. It's really good, and it's just, it's really engaging and direct and, and straightforward. It's awesome. Good luck with your voiceless. We keep your fingers crossed, our fingers crossed for you. Thank you. See you all next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.